you know, I ran into him at Bamsey in San Antonio, and he was getting a prosthetic fit for his leg so he could mountain bike better. And I said, <laughs> you know how to ride? And he said, yeah. And I said, why don't you come to the ranch? And special, he did. Special Forces amputee, right? Right. Twice in combat on one leg. Still a very dear friend. And one great athlete. I mean, this guy can. This guy is a fabulous biker. Well, you, you said you invited him to the ranch and he rode you in the ground with one leg. He did. <laughs> <laughs> and he still rides me in the ground with one leg. Welcome to the National Defense. The National Defense is dedicated to the men and women who serve our country in active duty, our veterans, and their families. We're here for you. God bless you. We love you. On each episode, we look for people and stories with some connection to these heroes. I'm Randy Miller. George W. Bush, the 43rd President of the United States, is well known for his work with veterans. He has released a book, Portraits of Courage, in which he paints portraits of military veterans. Welcome back to the National Defense. It's Randy Miller. And uh, in our new series, The Upcoming Artists of America, we got a guy that you might know, uh, 43rd President of the United States, President George W. Bush. Mr. President, how are you? I'm doing great today, and you? Uh, great, thank you so much for the time. I am honored to be known as an upcoming artist. <laughs> Listen, I didn't realize until I, I, I read the book, Portraits of Courage, and this is so good. It's a commander-in-chief's tribute to America's warriors, and I didn't realize how much you got into this painting now, and I guess it all started from a, a book you read about Winston Churchill? Yeah, that's right. I'm a big admirer of Churchill. I loved his leadership style, his humor, his grasp of the English language. And uh, I realized he was a painter as well, and uh, it inspired me to uh, take up the uh, take up the hobby. It, well, it, you say it's a hobby, but don't you do this two or three hours a day now? I do, yeah. it's it's. I guess it's more than a hobby. It's, it's, it's an obsession. Well, okay, obsession is one way to describe it. I, I really am uh, interested in becoming as good a painter as I possibly can become before I can't I can't hold a brush. And uh, to this end, for example, one of my instructors is coming by the house, and we'll paint for three or four hours a day. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, it has to be, you know, a lot of people, when they're starting out as an artist, to get some instruction. When the president or the former president calls and says, hey, can you come by? Uh, you know, you, you got an edge up there, don't you? Well, I th- you know, I, I'm fortunate I've had three great instructors, two of whom are still active in my life. And, uh, yes, I'm, you know, they were, I'm, I'm really pleased they decided to come over. I built a little studio in the house, so they come by the house, we'll have lunch and talk about art, and then I'll paint some. That's great. That's so good. And, th- and this book... I got to tell you, it, it's it's very rare that, you know, we'll get some news about a book that highlights the positive accomplishments of our nation's heroes. So, yeah. I, I mean, to that end, I just thank you so much for, for spotlighting these men and women that you feature in the book and all of whom you've met personally. And I got to tell you, I mean, I, I enjoyed the portraits, but I almost enjoyed the stories better. And you wrote all the stories. I did. Yeah, I've gotten to know these vets, uh, some better than others, uh, through our uh, mountain biking and golf. And uh, I stay in touch with a lot of them. And, you know, a lot of them are, it, it's like there's a, uh, uh, you know, a, a veterans uh, alumni group now. <laughs> and they talk amongst each other. And it's very important in dealing with the invisible wounds of war, Randy, sure. because. What we've discovered, and you know as well, is that the stigma of an invisible wound is very difficult for a lot of these vets. Uh, to, I mean, it's difficult for them to talk about it. So in the book, 
There are numerous stories about vets who, you know, kept their problems inside, and uh, as a result, their situations got worse. But when they started talking about it publicly, uh, to particularly to their fellow vets, uh, that their situations improved. And so the purpose of the book was to really talk about each veteran and to perhaps provide a roadmap for other veterans. Uh, who are dealing with the invisible wounds of war. Well, and, and you know, we know well here on the program that uh, there's nothing better uh, than t- kind of tackling that issue than when you put vets together with other vets and they, you know, open yeah. up those relationships. I love the story about Chris Self. Chris Self is the uh, first <laughs> veteran that you talk about in the book, and it's great. You, he's a sergeant. And that's the other thing I loved about the book, Mr. President, was the fact it's not just uh, colonels and generals and, and uh, you know, uh, majors. I mean, these are staff sergeants. These are uh, these are really regular people that have uh, been heroic through their actions. And so, yeah. Well, so it's nice. interesting you met Self. Uh, he's the reason why I started riding mountain bikes with vets. You know, I ran into him at Bamsey in San Antonio, and he was getting a prosthetic fit for his leg so he could mountain bike better. And I said, you know how to ride? And he said, yeah. And I said, why don't you come to the ranch? And special, he did. special forces amputee, right? Right. Twice in combat on one leg, still a very dear friend and one great athlete. I mean, this guy can, this guy's a fabulous biker. Well, you, you said you invited him to the ranch and he rode you in the ground with one leg. He did. <laughs> and he still rides me in the ground with one leg. And, uh, so I stay in touch with Chris, and uh, you know I had his birthday party, and I told Laura the only thing I really wanted was to ride with the vets. Wow! And you know a bunch of them came down, many of them in this book, and uh, you know, and so we stay in touch and have a great relationship. The key thing, though, is to draw attention to this wellness alliance we've developed, uh, and. Uh, you know, one of the messages from the books is courageous to talk about the invisible wounds. Right. And uh, and if they want help, they can go to bushcenter.org uh, and look at the Wellness Alliance. They not only can hook them up with peer-to-peer counseling groups that are effective, but also to clinics that are effective in helping them deal with with uh, with their uh, invisible wounds. Well, I the ask- other thing we do, yeah. the other thing we do, it's really important, is a vet roadmap uh, that they can find at bushcenter.org as well uh, to. Uh, you know, to help them with employment. Well, and that's what I loved. I wanted to bring that up, the warrior wellness providers that you do. And and this is a brand-new feature of the Bush Center, right, in terms of this program. Yes, it is. It's one of the, you know, we, we, we focus on leadership a lot, and one of the things that the country's got to understand is that these men and women have got a Ph.D. in life at a relatively young age and have learned leadership skills and have helped with transition will be the leaders for the country in the future. Yeah, and I love the resources you put there. In fact, uh, Team Rubicon is a group that we feature on the program a lot, big partner of the Home Depot Foundation. And, yeah, they're great. Uh, I mean, they are fantastic. What a great idea, right? I mean, what a simple idea. You take the men and women who have served in combat and you put them together with uh, uh, crisis management people and you bring them in because they know how to do everything. Yeah, that's right. And they're unbelievably skilled people. And the other thing that's very important about Team Rubicon and others is that they get to relate to fellow vets. And so you take a person who's troubled, for example, by the invisible wounds, and he's uh, helping another citizen somewhere in the world side by side with a vet who's been through what he's been through. And it gives him a chance to talk about it. And this vet will say, you know, I got great help from, say, the, uh, the Cohen Veterans Network. You ought to look at it. And and so what we've done in this website, and, and it is an ongoing process, by the way, is to 
create a very strong wellness alliance. And we're working, by the way, with the VA as well. And so this is a collaborative effort, and we're uniquely positioned to be able to draw attention to and to rally different forces to come together for a common good. We're talking to President George W. Bush, and you mentioned the VA, Mr. President. And, you know, it's an interesting thing because it's, uh, I can't imagine a tougher job. It, it may, I agree. It may be president, but these people that are in, in charge of the VA, they all they all want to do good work. I mean, it's just a tough job, and, and there's a lot of criticism, but we recognize, at least on this program, that they want to do the very best for veterans. Yeah. I mean, look, there's this is a giant, sprawling bureaucracy, and right. so there's going to be, uh, you know, successes and failures, and the failures get amplified, which is fine. Uh, we just believe that the effort, there is a public-private effort that will right. make you know, make it make it work for the vets. First of all, it starts with the vets wanting help themselves. Right. President George W. Bush is our guest here in the National Defense, the new book, Portraits of Courage. Can you talk a little bit about the guy that is in the book that came to you and, and said, would you sign, would, would you autograph my tattoo? Yeah. Valdez, yeah. He is <laughs> a... Uh, uh, he came to us as a result of uh, Michael uh, Rod Rodriguez, who is on the cover of the book with the with the prosthetic uh, kind of blue green eye. And uh, Valdez is a tough soldier, yeah. and we had ridden mountain bikes. And he uh, he he said, uh, "Would you sign my tattoo?" And I kind of you know, hey, uh, Valdez, this is kind of a strange request. He said, "Sign it." sign it, and I did. And he immediately went down to uh, Waco to the tattoo parlor and got my signature tattooed on his tattoo. So he's got a tattoo over the tattoo of the signature. That's fantastic. Which really was a huge honor in my mind. And so when I painted him, I painted, made sure the tattoo with my signature on it That's great. was on the painting. You know, this is the first book I've seen that I've had in a long time, Mr. President, that has a centerfold. Yeah, it <laughs> Yeah, not X-rated. No, no, but it's a mural of all of these different veterans that you've painted, and it's fantastic. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's a, I'm very pleased with how it came out. Uh, the book publisher did a fabulous job of, of photographing these uh, paintings. In the, and so at the Bush Center on the SMU campus, uh, we have this exhibit up, and it's, it's getting well attended. And uh, at the centerpiece is this a mural of faces. Three of the faces I repeated on larger canvases, but the other, uh, you know, 30-some-odd faces are, are distinct. And uh, I, I liked it because it reflected, really, our country, the, the different backgrounds, different, right. uh, you know, ethnic groups, men and women. Uh, and I tried to paint it so that the uniforms were fairly uniform uh, and it, so it looked. It, it reminded people that these are people who volunteered to serve something greater than them, their own individual selves. You know, and, and Mr. President, uh, I mean, the book, uh, the Bush Center, uh, the exhibit, the Warrior Wellness Providers. Why do you do all? That? You don't. You don't have to be doing that. I mean, you could just be riding your mountain bike and, uh, you know, painting. Yeah. And, I mean, why? Why do you do that? Well, it's not in my nature to sit, sit idle, and so obviously in the post-presidency, one of the challenges is how do you make yourself useful without being, uh, you know, disrupting the system or or undermining the office of president. And so, uh, and as, as a result of the, some of the tough decisions I made, mainly putting people into combat, I decided that uh, I wanted to honor them and help them as best I can for the rest of my life. Uh, I've got a lot of passions, uh, but this is one of the uh, one of the highest passions, and so uh, I am I am 
constantly, my spirit is constantly renewed and refreshed when I'm around these vets. There's no self-pity, as you know, uh, Randy. And these vets, uh, I mean, Melissa Stockwell, who uh, lost her leg in combat, uh, has now got two children and went on to win the bronze medal in the uh, Paralympics in in Brazil, says on national TV, you know, basically, sorry, I lost my leg. But on the other hand, it made my life so different in many ways and so rich in many ways. And it's that spirit that, you know, that ought to embolden all Americans. Well, and what's amazing, Mr. President, is the fact that uh, these people, uh, they they lose a leg, they go back into combat. Absolutely. it's, It's incredible. Well, Kent Solheim, who's on the cover of the book, we call him Captain America. He's a real handsome-looking guy, <laughs> and he uh, he, uh, uh, he he recently commanded a unit in Afghanistan, uh, a special forces unit on one leg. He probably wow. the, well, the highest-ranking officer is Considine, who was a lieutenant colonel who took a bullet in the face, and is now a motivational mm. speaker. Wow. Wonderful, wonderful man. And then Kent, I think, is a major now. And uh, but you're right, most of the people in the book were sergeants or corporals, uh, you know, who. Uh, who uh, volunteered to serve. So you, you got your mountain bike. You're still doing the mountain biking, right? Yes, I am. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, particularly when I go down the ranch, which we try to get down there once a month, I ride a lot when I'm down there. And a lot of times these vets, will, if they're around, they'll come over and ride with me. Is there any horseback riding at the ranch? No. Uh, the mountain bike, you don't have to feed the mountain bike. <laughs> That's right. No, uh, no hay burning. Uh, no hay burning, that, right. That's right. Well, I know that uh, we've had people on the show before that do the equine therapy. And, yeah. and there's a game uh, called horse soccer that you, you should get yourself involved in. Well, I, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm a little too old to try some new dangerous <laughs> no, sport. I don't believe that. I don't believe mountain, that. I, I mountain mean, biking satisfies my urge to act like a teenager. Well, and, uh, you know, but, yeah, it, there's a lot of programs, by the way, outdoor yeah. programs that help these vets. And one of the things that comes out in this book, Portraits of Courage, is that you know mountain biking has uh, or outdoor sports have been really effective yep. at helping a vet get stabilized enough to be able to seek help and 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 you know recover to the best extent possible. You know, as you know, Mr. President, many veterans and active duty that we had on the program always, always consider you their president. And I'm sure that's related to you many times. Well, that's nice. I appreciate that a lot. I've, the bond I established as president continues to be strong. And, uh, you know, obviously, to the extent I can help anybody, I want to do so. So we're based in Kansas City, Missouri, and I hate to get into a controversial area such as barbecue, but, uh, uh, you know, now that you're not the president, uh, you can tell us, you know, what you really think of, uh, you know, between Kansas City barbecue and Texas barbecue. Well, let me just tell you this. On my 70th birthday, after riding for a couple of hours with these vets, we didn't have Kansas City ribs. We had Texas barbecue ribs. <laughs> well, well, listen, whenever, if you can't afford Kansas City ribs, we can send you some. <laughs> We're in pretty good shape down here. But, but you know, Randy is damn thoughtful of you. <laughs> you know what I'd love to do sometime, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and invite myself. I'd love to come down to the ranch, gather some of these uh, these folks that are uh, featured in Portraits of Courage, and do a show on location uh, with them and at the Bush Center. And if, yeah. if that's ever a possibility, we'd love to be there. Well, my man, Freddie, who helped me a lot in oh, this yeah. book, is the person to contact. And, and, you know, if possible, we'll get you down here and you can interview some of these guys. Mr. President, thank you so much for the time. And, and thank All you, right, Randy. Thank you for shining the spotlight on uh, on veterans and, and our heroes. Well, back at you. You're doing the same thing and keep it up. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. All right, Randy. 
Colin Powell is an American politician, diplomat, and retired four-star general who served as the 65th United States Secretary of State. He served as the 16th U.S. National Security Advisor from 1987 to 1989 and as the 12th Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff from 1989 to 1993. Hey, listen, it's such an honor to talk to you. Thank you so much for the time. When you mention General Colin Powell, in his role as Secretary of State or anything that he's ever done in leadership roles, it's hard to find anybody that has a problem with Colin Powell. And, and General, you know, in this, in this day and age with everything that's going on, that's a tough thing to say <laughs> about anybody. Well, you know, guys, uh, I appreciate that very, very much. But if you really want to see some people or meet some people who would say negative things about me, I can provide as many as you need. <laughs> so this is, a, this is a great honor, like I said. And I think that as far as leadership goes, you've not only uh, demonstrated that throughout your career, but that has been one of your focal points, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Um, uh, you know, when I, when I left the State Department and was thinking about writing another book. People wanted me to write a memoir about my time at the State Department. But I said, you know, something that might be more useful is to write a book about what I learned in my many years of service with respect to leadership. And the title of the book was, It Worked For Me. Hey, it may not work for you, but this worked for me. And it's 44 short stories, none longer than about six pages. And uh, everyone stands on its own, so you can dial in anywhere. And we've been enormously pleased with the way it's turned out. It's, uh, it's been selling at military bases, especially. Peggy and I could go to any military base in the country and sell 800 to 1,000 books in a couple hours. Wow. And um, it, it did well generally throughout the public. A lot of my speaking audiences will, will order copies of the book. But the most fun I'm having with it is I live in McLean, Virginia, which is a small little suburban town uh, with strip malls like you used to have in the old days. And there's a sure. wonderful hardware store there family-owned hardware store known as McLean Hardware. And so one day I said, hey, I see you guys sometimes sell books uh, on your counter here. You want some of mine? And they said, yeah, okay, if you want, General. So I gave them about five. And that's been about 10 months ago. We've now sold about 300 over the counter at the hardware store. Yeah, I mean, it's really an old-fashioned hardware store with two counters leaving the store. And teenage girls, members of the family, are the ones that that are the cashiers. But the beauty of it is, and where I become a great, great uh, uh, benefactor, is that I didn't want to make any money on this. It's a small store. So I said, look, I'll, I'll give them to you for what it cost me, and you sell it at list price, and you'll make uh, almost a you know, great profit on it. Well, I didn't know they were going to sell 300. I thought they were going to yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not as great a businessman as I am a, a soldier. Oh, I, don't, I think you're doing pretty good. And I see all kinds of audiences. Sometimes it's a very sophisticated corporate audience. Sometimes it's just young people. Uh, And it keeps me alive to be with young people and, frankly, to see what's going on in the country between the oceans Uh, and to realize that, you know, we have our difficulties and there's some disgruntled feelings in the country right now. But when you go out in the country, you find people that still believe in this place to the depth of their heart and soul. And uh, they just want to see us do the right thing and get better. And uh, we got to focus on that. The politics yeah. in America have become too partisan and yeah. too destructive of each other. And we got to we got to change that. We got to fix that. The reason I was able to achieve the American dream is I started off right. I was born in Harlem to two immigrant people who came to this country, and I was raised in the South Bronx. 
but I had a family, a tight family, not only my parents, but an extended family of cousins, aunts, and uncles. And uh, the feeling in the family was we didn't come to this country uh, in order not to succeed, and the only way we can really succeed is earn a living and then raise children who will do better than us. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's what they did. It, it never occurred to me or to my sister that we would go home one day and say, you know, I'm tired of this, I'm going to drop out. Uh, they would have dropped us out. Yeah, <laughs> Rick's uh, right. No, no they, they made it very, very clear. You're not going to shame this family, and we have expectations for you. Um, and so I, I struggled through, uh, through, through school. Uh, it was only when I hit ROTC in college that I got turned on by something, hmm. and that was the military. And as I've said to many, many people who ask me, you know, when you were a kid growing up in, in the South Bronx, did you dream you could become chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? And I just laugh and smile and say, yeah, there I was. I was standing on a street corner, you know, Kelly Street and 163rd at about 10 years old, and I said, you're going to grow up and become chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. <laughs> it was unattainable and it was unthinkable back in the 1940s. But guess what? It happened. Yeah. And it happened because of my family. It happened because of the public school system I had in New York City. And it happened because this is America, and America was changing. And I came along as that change was taking place, especially with respect to racial relations and getting rid of Jim Crow and segregation and things like that. It doesn't mean that we've achieved the dream that Martin Luther King had for us. That's coming. But just keep pushing, keep pressing. And uh, the country is changing. I can see it as I travel around. I can see it as I watch television. You see mixed couples in advertising. And the reason for that is the advertisers realize that's the way the country's going to increasingly look. And they got a, they got a market to, yeah. that, to that group. And so I have total faith in the resiliency of this country to do the right thing, even if it takes us a while, because that's what our founding fathers intended. Remember what they, what they told us, to make this a more perfect union. They never said perfect. They said more perfect, right. meaning every day we have to try, try to do something right in the country to make it more perfect. That's the dream they had. I mean, I've, I've been exposed to uh, discrimination as a junior officer and, as a, frankly, as, as a senior officer sometimes. <laughs> And what I have said to others, you know, um, I'm just going to do my job to the best of my ability. If you have a racial problem with me, that's your problem. I will not let it be my problem. I will not carry your racist burden around. Uh, and that's taken me through a few unpleasant experiences over the years. But what I tell young people of all races, and I'm not just a black general, I'm a general for all of our races, all of our people who serve in the armed forces of the United States. What I say is, you know, do your very, very best. Don't always try to be the best, just always do your best. And America is waiting to help you achieve your best. And that's what I've always tried to do. I never expected to reach the levels that I reached in this government and in the United States, but I did. And I wasn't out to, uh, you know, walk over anybody doing it. I just did my best. If that was good enough, that's all I could do. I'm very involved in education. I have something like 10 schools named after me across the country. Wow. Um, you'll never guess what state has the most Colin Powell schools. Uh, it, Texas. Really? Yep. I got four schools, one in, one outside of Houston, two outside of Dallas, and one at, at uh, Fourth Plus down in El Paso. And I'm very <laughs> proud. I've been to all 10. I've been to the one in Jersey City. I've been to the one in Centerville, Virginia. I've been to a lot of them, but the one that the biggest one is my college, the City College of New York. They started a small center named after me twenty something years ago, and I couldn't have anything to do with it. I was in government. When I got out of government in two thousand and 
and five when I left the State Department, I went up there to see what was going on in my name. And I realized that the kids that go to that school are mostly minority, 90% minority, and 80% say they were born somewhere else. Wow. And when I heard all of that, I said, I gotta get involved here. And so I started to spend a lot of time up there and I chaired the Board of Visitors. And six years ago, the college saw fit to make an entire school in the college named after me, the Colin Powell School for Global and Civic Leadership. Wow. Uh, yeah, and uh, it's got a third, almost a third of the student body, and I cannot tell you what joy it gives me uh, to go up there and be with these kids. We also brought ROTC back to the campus after ah. it had been away for 20 or 30 years. So uh, what, what, what do you think we leave behind when we're gone? The only thing we leave behind are you know, good works, people like you, but it's kids. Sure. Uh, it's the next generation. And I'll often say, you know, I got a lot of little medals that I wear and a lot of trinkets that have been given me over the years, but nothing matches walking up to one of these schools that has across the top of it the Colin Powell School. We're talking to General Colin Powell here in the National Defense, and I can't imagine, General, that has to be precedent-setting for someone that has not been the president of the United States to have 10 schools named after them. I mean, that's, uh, that's incredible. But the, the real question is, how come you never have been president? I was busy naming schools. <laughs> They're brand new, and they had to name them after somebody. And I know that's not an original question. You probably ask that every uh, you know, two or three days. And, no, and it, we, I wish it was every two or three days. It's every day. It's every day, and yeah. It's been 22 years since I said, you know, this is not for me or my family. But I'm very flattered whenever somebody says it. I'm not, not offended. But I just have to say, you know, you have to have something inside of you that pushes you in that direction. And um, I, I did not... And uh, so I, I didn't fool myself. I didn't deceive myself or the American people by thinking that I really had that passion. And I've served almost 40 years either in diplomacy or military. Uh, and my family and I continue to serve, not only with the schools that we go to and sponsor, but the America's Promise Alliance, which we created some 20, 22 years ago, uh, that my wife now runs. And we focus on the needs of our kids especially those kids who don't have the kind of family that I had or maybe you guys have had. Um, and uh, where that doesn't exist, then we have to bring in boys and girls clubs. We've got to bring in uh, mentoring programs. We've got to make sure these kids have a healthy start in life and they're getting a good quality education. It can be done, but no one sweeping program is going to do it all. Each of us has to get in the lives of kids in need and never forget that we have benefited from this country and we have an obligation not just to enjoy those benefits, but to reach down, back, and across and lift somebody else up. As I said in my, my writings and my speeches over the years, leadership is all about followership. You're not a leader if you don't have followers who will willingly follow you. And so I have always gone into every assignment I've ever had thinking first and foremost about the people that have been entrusted to my care. And how do I give them a sense of purpose, that what they are doing is important, is vital? I did it at the State Department, I did it when I worked in the White House, and I did it throughout my military career. What you're doing is vital, it's important. People need to think they're doing something that is vital, and that was what will inspire them. And then the next thing I always try to apply is once I have them moving and inspired and we're all on the same sheet of music, how do I make sure that I give them the tools they need to get the job done? In the military, those tools are weapons and equipment. In the State Department, they are diplomats and foreign service officers who are coming in. 
And in the White House, it was making sure you had the best staff you could have. And then taking care of them. Uh, people like to be taken care of. They like to be recognized for performance done well. Uh, and you, they expect you to take care of those folks who are not performing. Move them on. Get them out. <clears throat> and the ones who know who's not performing long before you do are the ones who are performing. They can see people who are not, you know, not getting it done and hanging back, and they're waiting for a leader to do something. And a leader who doesn't do something is not a leader. And so at the end of the day, you have to make sure that not only are you a good leader, but you too are a good follower. And people will look up to you if you're taking care of them and if they believe in what you are asking them to do. It's, just, it's pretty much as simple as that. And the American soldier and the American civilians that I work with are like that. What is it we need to be doing? How does it serve the country? Are you taking care of us? Are you getting us what we need to get the job done? And if you do all of that, and if you recognize their performance, and if you discipline the organization, uh, they will follow you to lots of places of danger. One of the last stories I usually tell has to do with when I was a, a brand-new lieutenant then at Fort Benning, Georgia, going to the infantry school. And I was going also to ranger training and airborne training. And a sergeant came up to me uh, toward the end of the course and said, Lieutenant Powell, you will know you're a good soldier if your troops will follow you, if only out of curiosity, meaning there will be danger. One day you'll have to send people up a hill and some of them are going to be killed. And they'll do that if they believe in you and if they trust you and if you trust them. And so building trust and confidence among a group of human beings is what leadership is all about. And that's what I've always tried to do, whether it's in working with students or working with soldiers, working with soldiers who are poor and white from uh, out in the sticks somewhere or black soldiers from the inner city. Um, more and more as I grow older, I treat them all as my fellow brothers and sisters, my fellow Americans. General, in in your leadership experience, how much does common sense play in in that? A great deal. I mean, yeah. I've always I'm a New Yorker. Yeah, we, we, you know we live on common sense, right? Um, and uh, I never forget that. Whenever I go back to New York and I'm walking around, um, I'm not General Powell or Secretary Powell. When I'm walking down, say 47th Street, past some construction workers. What I usually hear is, yo, Colin, how you doing? <laughs> Some guy from Staten Island. But that's, that's, those are my people. Yeah, exactly. I, I never forget where I came from. And common sense, I've always tried to be very commonsensical. Does it make sense? And that's why I'm probably not a very good uh, politi- politician, let me put it that well, way. Well, I, I can so see, yeah, success. right. People are asking me what was the most important thing in my life, what was, what was the worst thing. And I try not to answer those questions because... When you say this was the most important changing event in my life, you're putting something else in second, third, and fourth place. Mm. So I, t- I tend not to answer those questions. It's something that happened at uh, uh, a conference in Davos, that famous conference they have every year. Okay. And this was in uh, early 2003. We were getting ready to start uh, the, uh, uh, the, the war, the second uh, Iraq war. And uh, a clergyman, he was the arch, retired archbishop of uh, England, Episcopal Archbishop, and he stood up to me and he said, well, why do we always have to find a war solution? Why can't we, you know, use diplomacy as soft power instead of hard power? 
And my response was, I believe in soft power. Uh, I'm well known for being the reluctant general who wants to try to solve a problem through diplomacy, not through war. But when war comes, then hard power is what counts. You want to do what you have to do and get it over with as soon as possible, put as many troops on it as you possibly can. And then I reminded him, and I said, you know, my Lord Archbishop, let me remind you that if it had not been for hard power in World War II, who knows where the Germans might be today, the Nazis might be today. So sometimes hard power is the only thing that will work. And I remind you, sir, that um, that's what we did to save England in World War II and make uh, Europe a democratic place and Japan a democratic place. And we didn't stay. We didn't ask for land. We didn't want sovereignty over anybody. The only thing we asked for was enough land to bury our dead. That, that uh, quieted the room down. <laughs> We're talking to General Colin Powell here on the National Defense. And, uh, General, I want to ask you about America's Promise. You were the chairman of America's Promise. Is what you're doing now, your work with students, is that pretty much an extension of America's Promise? Uh, it's, it's an extension, uh, and it, it uh, undergirds America's Promise. But even if there was no America's Promise, I'd be doing this because I love kids. Uh, I've got three of my own plus uh, four grandchildren. Uh, and I love going to schools. I was on the board of the Boys and Girls Clubs of America for a number of years, and nothing gave me greater joy than to go to a Boys and Girls Club, get the, get the adults out of the way, and put the kids on the floor in front of me and just talk to them for about 30 minutes. The younger the kids were, the more fun it was for me. Uh, and so I do everything I can. Uh, I've adopted a school here in northwest Washington, a group of students. I've been working with the school now for 21 years. Wow. You know, can't just tell other people to do things. I have to do things, too. And so we have been mentoring these youngsters, kids who might go down the right path without our help, and there are kids who might not go down any good path without our help. And so uh, we, we try to find those who are in the middle, could go either way. And those are the ones we work on. And my, my wife runs the organization now, and I'm very proud of what she has done. And this week we'll be celebrating our 21st uh, anniversary of the America's Promise Alliance. Wow. Thank you for your time. Bye now. You know, you don't have to be a five-star general to be involved with the national defense. You can subscribe and leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to the national defense. The national defense is written and hosted by me, Randy Miller, and executive produced by Nate Heron. Be sure to visit us online at thenationaldefense.com.